Instead of asking why I feel so lazy, we need to ask ourselves why we need more rest. Welcome to the High Performance Health Podcast with your host, Angela Foster. The show where we talk about everything you need to break through limits and achieve a high performance mind, body and lifestyle. Welcome to another episode of the High Performance Health Podcast. To all my lovely long-time listeners, a very warm welcome to this episode today. And for those of you that are new, I know we have lots of new listeners. Welcome to the High Performance Health Podcast. This is a show where I talk about everything you need to optimize your mind, body, and spirit. We dive into hormones, fitness, longevity, biohacking, fasting. There are tons and tons of episodes that you can go back and listen to. But firstly, welcome to the show. And this this today's episode, I should say, is not going to disappoint. I know this has been long awaited. I'm so excited to say, to announce that my guest today is Dr. Stacey Sims. So we're going to be diving all into fitness and longevity and fasting and why Stacey believes that you should be pre-fueling your exercise and why exercise trumps fasting for autophagy in most cases and particularly for women and women's health and balancing their hormones. Dr. Stacey Sims is a forward-thinking international exercise physiologist and nutrition scientist who aims to revolutionize exercise, nutrition, and performance for women. She's directed research programs at Stanford, AUT University, and the University of Waikato, focusing on female athlete health and performance and pushing the dogma to improve research on all women. She has two amazing books, Raw and her most recent book that we're going to be diving into today, Next Level. Uh, both fantastic books. If you haven't um, haven't read those yet, then definitely head over to Amazon and uh, get your copy. Also, make sure you're following Dr. Stacey Sims on Instagram because she releases uh, really helpful content on there and links to her blogs and the latest scientific research that she's doing. But without further delay, let me introduce you to second time guest on the show, Dr. Stacey Sims. So I'm so excited to have Dr. Stacey Sims back on the show. Uh, it was an amazingly popular podcast last time. Stacey has a new book out, Next Level, Your Guide to Kicking Ass, Feeling Great and Crushing Goals Through Menopause and Beyond, which is brilliant. If you haven't read it yet, I highly recommend it. But first of all, Stacey, very welcome, warm welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you. I'm looking at us and you're like sleeveless <laughs> and I'm in like puffy jacket. I know. Other sides of the world. but Other yeah. sides of the world. I know yeah. for once, so we were just saying offline, uh, just how we're having such an amazing summer here in the UK, which is really, really unusual. Um, so what prompted Next Level? Uh, brilliant, you know, Raw was an amazing book. I know you've been doing lots of courses following it. Um, what prompted you to write Next Level and kind of look at menopausal women? Uh, when we wrote Roar, um, there were so we only had one chapter on menopause and I got so many questions about it like where do I get more information and I started um, looking at some of my friends who were getting into the early 40s and asking questions and I had done quite a bit of research with Marcia Stefanik who was the primary investigator for the Women's Health Initiative so it was kind of sitting there in the back of my head of all these things but didn't realize really that it wasn't relatively out there for people to access so as I started getting more and more questions from the active population of women who are like, what is going on? How do I get more information? So we need to write a book about this. So Celine actually was 
my co-author was one of the people was like, yeah, I don't really know if there's room for this until she started experiencing things. And I think she mentions it in the forward. Like she emailed me and I told her to do a few things and she's like, yeah, okay, we got to write this book. Um, mm. And it's amazing, like how many people are just gravitating to it because there isn't anything really out there that speaks to our population of active women. Yeah, no, there isn't. And I think um, one of the things that was really interesting to me, with, for me actually was at the front when you talk about and you show the graphs of what's happening in a woman's body in terms of the way her fat mass is changing. And so many people that I see, they come to me and they might even be taking hormone replacement therapy and they say, you know, my sleep's got better, my brain fog has lifted, I've got less anxiety, but what the hell is going on with my body and why am I getting all this belly fat? And you talk there about how in the in the three to four years leading up to menopause we see the biggest body composition changes can you briefly explain what's going on because i think we first need to understand what's going on right before we can correct it yeah so when we're talking about perimenopause and as we were talking about offline you have early perimenopause and late perimenopause early perimenopause you'll start seeing some um, changes in bleed patterns and this is an indication your hormones are switching but as we start to get to late perimenopause you're having less and less ovulatory cycles, if any. So you are not having the same ratio of estrogen progesterone. You're becoming more estrogen dominant. Uh, progesterone is flatlining and your body's responding to that because estrogen, progesterone affect every system of the body and they're tightly regulated by the same area in the brain that controls performance. So when we start losing estrogen, progesterone, we start seeing this massive amount of changes in our body composition because we no longer have these hormones working for us to keep our body composition in check. So if we're looking at estrogen and it's tightly tied to the myosin filament of the actin myosin proteins for muscle contraction. So when estrogen starts to get out of whack, then your muscle contraction isn't as strong. So you don't have the signal to keep that muscle and you start to lose more of that muscle mass. And we also become more anabolically resistant because we don't have estrogen, which is women's testosterone. So we don't have the signal to build mass. And progesterone is really um, important for maintaining like glucose homeostasis and keeping us from having that deep um, abdominal fat. So we start losing that, we see all these changes. So when we're talking about these body composition changes that are usually associated with menopause, people are like, I'm not menopausal yet but I'm having all these changes. It's because it's the years leading up to menopause that we have to really instigate different techniques in our training and different nutritional strategies to offset what these hormones are no longer doing for us. I like to say we need to find an external stress to create a signal of adaptation the way the hormones used to support our body. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And I think um, <clears throat> I think it's what, what women are seeing, isn't it, is they're effectively seeing body recomposition, but in the way that they don't want. So it's not so much that they're putting on tons and tons and tons of weight, but it's almost like most, most people come and they'll say, I want to lose less than seven pounds, but I want to gain more muscle and have more tone. And it seems like in perimenopause, everything's shifting the other way. You are kind of instead exactly. of losing around seven pounds, you're gaining around seven pounds and you're having less muscle mass and more body fat. So you kind of go a bit soft. Um, yes so we need we know we need to provide like a significant trigger and you've been saying that and in the book there's 
really, really helpful chapters about each of these different strategies that women can use. If we stick first with lifting, so one of the things you say is you need to lift heavy shit. That's the thing that women need to really do for that trigger. Um, yeah. How often do they need to be doing this? Because I've kind of seen a variance. You, you've got women who are fueling their bodies and doing um, strength training really to basically facilitate better workouts in terms of their athleticism. And then you'll have women that are listening who are doing this because they want body composition results. And I've seen a difference, and, and I'm curious as to your point of view. I know you talk about sort of two to three times a week. I've noticed that if you want body composition in terms of aesthetics, it seems to be more like three to four times a week. Could you kind of yeah. clarify how much strength training we need to be doing? Yeah, so the bare minimum, and it's written for people who have never lifted heavy. That's why we're like, okay, two to three times, just to really phase yourself in, understand you have good technique, and then you start adding load. As you become more trained with heavy lifting, of course, you need more stimulus. So if we're looking at aesthetically changing body composition, this is where your bare minimum is four times a week. We also know that when you're lifting heavy, you, women specifically, there's a signal to really mobilize belly fat. So this is really important for women who are in physique building or looking for aesthetics for like summer or whatever it is to really hit that four times a week minimum. If we're looking for like, I have a lot of endurance athletes who want to get better and they want to maintain strength for their sport. The two times a week is a bare minimum for when they are actually in their race season. I don't want them to drop it because if you drop that strength training, it really does a disservice if you're trying to stay strong for your sport because you start losing more lean mass and it takes longer to build it back. And in this time period, it is so incredibly difficult not only to build lean mass, but to keep it. So if you're not stimulating to keep it and you lose it, it takes a significant amount of more work to put that, that lean mass back on. So again, we can divide it up to what is your primary goal? Are you endurance focused that needs the strength to complement what you're doing at bare minimum is two? If you're someone who is more gym oriented and lifting and physique oriented, then that bare minimum is four. Okay, interesting. And what about when we're looking at <clears throat> recovery and any kind of like deloading but also around the menstrual cycle so often what I'll do is sort of lessen things off towards the end of the cycle uh, in terms of the intensity um, and that almost gives my body some recovery and, and my understanding is it helps to support progesterone production should you when we're saying a minimum of four times a week how would you structure that if we look I guess we should sort of need to look in and the, and the two for the endurance athlete if we're looking at three different sections of the population so we're looking at women who are in their cycling years, they haven't yet hit perimenopause. And then we have a category of women who may be in early perimenopause um, who are still cycling, but maybe they're having anovulatory cycles and they really want to optimize for that progesterone as much as they can. And then you've got women who now this, they're experiencing significant disruption, disruption. How would you bucket them in terms of that intensity? So we're looking at someone who's naturally cycling, we know that it's the follicular phase that lengthens and shortens for the most part in, in premenopausal women in reproductive years. And you can leverage intensity in that low hormone state around ovulation and about the five days after ovulation. This is where we start to do more steady state work. Maybe we're upping the reps and dropping the weight, but that 
five-ish days before your period starts, we really say, let's deload. We want to look complete recovery, work technique under the bar, work on skills, drills, and do everything to really support your body, to absorb the hard training you've done before, support progesterone production, or good sleep, because we have a lot of sleep disruption in that high hormone phase. And then when you um, get into the low hormone phase of the bleed phase, again, you're ready to hit it hard. If we're looking at someone who is early perimenopause and they're still having regular cycles, following that same pattern is good. And we really want to emphasize that deload. It's the recovery between days that you might find you need a little bit more. Instead of, there was a meme that came out, I think it was today, where it said, instead of asking why I feel so lazy, we need to ask ourselves why we need more rest. And when we hit perimenopause, there's this this myth that women are always so busy and they're like in a rushing women syndrome where they're highly stressed, they're tired, but wired. And yet they're using exercise to de-stress, but they're not taking enough rest. So they're always fighting and they're always tired. And I find this in the early perimenopause years because people aren't quite aware that they're in perimenopause. Mm-hmm. So they're tired, they're wired, they're busy, and they're still trying to do all their training and they're not quite hitting the mark and they're not getting the adaptations. So it's looking and saying, okay, well, we need to back down around ovulation. We need to really focus in on that recovery as we're starting to have immune system changes to be more pro-inflammatory. We're starting to look, maybe we're having an ovulatory cycle. So we have less estrogen production as well. And we have the eye of more recovery between days. And then that last week or five days before the period is due to come is really recover, deload, absorb it. Then when we get into late perimenopause, where the cycles are really irregular, where you might have one that's a normal 28 day, then all of a sudden it's 40 or 50 days. And you're like, I don't know when my period's going to come. We tend to shift it to having two week focus, one week deload, but the deload isn't completely off in recovery. We look at it as really super easy doing what you want to do. And if you're training for an endurance or you're training specifically for um, like a physique build and you're trying to lose a little bit of body fat, then we can look at doing a super, super easy, longer cardio session a couple of times during that deload week. So people are like, what? I can't take a full week off. I'm in the habit. It's how I get my, uh, my stress relief to keep the same days of activity, but we just moderate what you're doing on those days. Instead of your boot camp or your high intensity or your heavy lifting on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, we're doing technique work on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And Tuesday, Thursday, instead of going for your interval run or or maybe a road ride, or maybe you're trying a new kickboxing class, you're just really dropping it way down to that 50% mark. So you're still having movement and activity, but it's a recovery focus instead of, okay, I'm going to hit it hard and then have another deload week. So we try to go that, that two week on, one week off, because then that sets us up for when we hit that actual post-menopause state where we do have a complete changeover in our recovery metrics and the way that our body does recover. And we know that you can handle up to two weeks of really focused block training, and then you need that week to really recover. Oh, so post-menopause, you do you need a week every two weeks, basically? Yeah. So two yeah. weeks on, one week. Okay. And you still can make, with that level of intensity for two weeks, you can still make the body composition changes that you Absolutely. want to. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely, yeah. 
And actually, from what you're saying is presumably as well by doing because you're sort of describing quite a lot of functional training as well, right? You can do lateral moves, you can move in different directions, you're going to be supporting that connective tissue um, and you're building a very strong core, which is going to help protect you against injury because it's kind of the things that we neglect if we don't set aside time, right? Exactly. And like looking at some of the newer researches coming out, they are looking at power-based training and plyometric or the kind of explosive movement in older women so 70 80 years old and they're finding that when they move away from that traditional three times a week 10 to 12 reps of a particular exercise and they put them in this focused intense session of they were going to do some heavy lifting and then we're going to do some plyometric work within reason of course because they're of their age and they do that for a two-week focus and a one-week off and not only do they increase lean mass and change body composition in a positive way, it also improves their balance and coordination. So now the fear of falling and, you know, if they step off a curb wrong or they slip on a stair, they don't fall because they have better balance and coordination. So if we're looking for the eye to health as well, that functional movement and the ability for proprioception becomes really important. And that's what we can work on as we're starting to get into this time where we need a little bit more recovery to keep adapting and getting performance gains. Yeah, really important. And I guess one thing I'd like to clarify, when we're talking about lifting heavy and we're talking sort of below six reps uh, and we're creating that stimulus, what are your views around this concept of one or two reps in reserve? Is that what you believe? Because I've seen some research that you don't need to go to failure and actually having that one to two reps in reserve will help you build muscle mass in just the same way without really predisposing you to injury. I'm curious what your thoughts are there. Yeah, I know. I've read that too. And then I've also pulled from the, the research again. If we tell women to have that one or two rep in reserve, unfortunately, our brains will not allow us to go as heavy as we should. Hmm. So it's a psychological, um, I guess, challenge for women to really put themselves in the hurt box so there is that fine line and this is why when i tell people when i want them to start lifting heavy or we talk about heavy lifting it could take three or four months to get to that loads that you want to lift because for me if you can't move well i don't want to put you under load so i want you to spend time learning technique really mobilizing getting to have really good mechanics it could be just with the bar and then you slowly start building weight on that bar as your mechanics are, are improving so that you get that weight with the proper mechanics so that it reduces injury risk. Because I've had women go, oh, I can't go do heavy lifting. I, I don't know how to do a deadlift. I'm like, I don't want you to. I want you mm -hmm. to take this time. Let's see how you move. Let's see how you hinge. Let's really work on the basics. Um, and then we are adding that in with mobility work they're improving their mechanics, they're improving their body composition, they're getting a lot of the proprioception and the firing patterns that we want. So then when we add that load in, it's like they've been lifting for a really long time. So I often get asked if there was one supplement and I had to narrow it down to one supplement that I would take, what would that be? And it would be Athletic Greens. Why? Because it contains pretty much everything you need. It has adaptogens in it. It has really good quality B vitamins and other vitamins and minerals. It has mushrooms. It has prebiotics, probiotics. 
and it also tastes incredibly good. And so I tend to have it first thing in the morning or add it into my morning smoothie. It's super easy to blend up and it's just so lovely in like skin clearing, energy boosting, um, helps with gut health. It's just magical. So it's the one thing that I take absolutely every single day. And the cool thing is you can get a year's free supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs from my friends over at AG1. All you need to do is head over to athleticgreens.com forward slash Angela Foster. That's athleticgreens.com forward slash Angela Foster. Now let's get back to the show. Interesting. And I think uh, you made a point earlier actually around the more you're the more you're training, the more you've got to add in, right? And I, I remember having this conversation with Mike Matthews earlier in the year, and he was talking about how different it is for somebody who regularly goes and how much harder they're actually going to have to work. One question yeah. I kind of have in my mind is what about you know, spinal strength, disc quality. I was told, for example, I had poor disc quality and I had a couple of prolapses. You know, at the moment I've been working on like deadlifts and squats and things and getting to say 120% of my body weight, but it can, it starts to concern me as to how much do you encourage people to keep going or to, obviously the technique's important, but sometimes I find that tempo actually can be as good a way of providing that resistance because you can almost add less weight, but as soon as you slow things down and you keep that muscle under tension, you're getting a significant trigger, or you can use machines with cables and things that keep the muscle under tension longer. What, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I, I like personally, I will never do a one or two rep max um, because I know I'd set myself up for injury being competitive. So I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm not going to do a one or two rep max. So if I'm lifting heavy, I'm always sets of three to five, because if I aim for that set of one, I know I'm going to walk out with some kind of back tweak. So when I'm looking at time under tension, I'll do a lot of the, initially I'll start with lighter weight to a dead stop if I'm doing deadlifts. But if I'm not, then I'll use some of the rebound. I will do touch and go, touch and go, touch and go, just to be able to maintain and use some of the momentum to use that heavier weight. I also um, have am on the advisor board for Tonal, and they're doing a lot of work with cables and eccentric loading. And I complement a lot of my heavy lifting with that and encourage people to do so because it works the muscle in a different way. And it still gets that myosin, actin, and neuro um, muscular connection, which is what we're after. Hmm. The idea behind lifting heavy isn't about the pure strength aspect of it, but it's about that neuromuscular connection to keep the myosin integrity so that we don't lose that mass. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it is actually, it's very tax- taxing on the neuromuscular system, isn't it? You it is. It. You fit, I mean, you fatigue because it's taking a lot of coordination and the brain gets yes. tired. Yeah. And that's why you see people sitting down on the bench waiting for like three to five minutes between, which is absolutely what you should do just so your central nervous system can have that break and get out of the fatigue state before you go do another lift. Yeah, it's a really good point because I think people are often nervous, right? And they think they're lazy, but then actually you realize how much more you can lift when you do take that proper rest. Yep. And yeah. you'll see it too. It's like the culture of the gyms. You'll see a lot of the guys who are into heavy lifting or, you know, power lifting and they're in the gym and they don't do very much work per se, although they actually are. And then you'll see women who are like, oh, I'm going to superset with this and I'm going to do sit-ups between that. And they're getting more of a cardiovascular workout instead of a true neuromuscular stimulus. Mm-hmm. So trying to educate women that when you're going to lift heavy, you do want that that sit down and rest time period. It's not a cardiovascular workout. It's mm-hmm. all about the neuromuscular system. 
be like one of those guys who has the mirror muscles, who does like a couple of lap pull downs or push press and then sits down for five minutes. That's what we want to emulate. Yeah. <laughs> it's so true. It feels lazy, but it's right. It's, it gets the best results. And what about yeah. with the and kind of um, ancillary moves? So like with the compound lifts, you're lifting heavy. Let's say you want to work your um, arms a bit more, things like that. Would you go higher reps on those or do you still encourage women to lift heavy, low repetition on all moves? I I like to do a heavy session and encourage people to do a heavy session. And then at the end, do a little bit of a burn. If they're really looking to work biceps or triceps, and then it's a, the lighter load with the higher reps because you've gotten what we want out of the heavy lifting session. And if you're doing compound movements, you're using the core, you're using tries, you're using buzz, you're using lats. So it's just kind of like the top off. Mm -hmm. But I don't encourage women to go in and be like, today I'm just doing the ancillary work where I'm doing light load and, and um, high reps. It's a bit of a waste of time. It is. Um, yeah. <laughs> it might feel good, as you say, particularly when you're going from one exercise to the other, but it's not doing that much. Um, sprint interval training. I know that yeah. if you knew what I'd done this morning now, I think I'd be told off. I've actually been measuring this with Bloomin. If I did this now, I reckon it's going to say I'm burning carbs. Because I think this is, I want to talk to you about sprint interval training, but also fueling, because this is the bit that I think busy women really struggle with. So I'll use myself as an example this morning. So I woke up, I meditated, I've come like addicted to brain tap. So I was doing a brain tap session. It's so good, like morning and night, it sends me into the deepest sleep. And I woke up about five and I did that. Then I was kind of, I'd read your book and I was kind of thumbing through thinking what are the really like key points I want to make sure I ask you. And then I was like, God, I've kind of run out of time. I normally work out first. So I'll just go and do some sprint training. And I've not eaten, had nothing but black coffee. I can feel my tummy rumbling. And I know that if I went, <laughs> for those of you that can see it, Stacey's face, uh, I'm going to tell him off. I imagine when I've tracked this on Lumen, what it shows me is everything you say in the research is that I know I woke up burning fat because I measured it. And likelihood is now if I breathe into this, it will say I'm burning carbs because my body is now under stress. And this was not deliberate. Yes. This is accidental, okay, because I've just yeah. managed my time poorly. Um, yeah. Before we go into sprint training, which is a separate thing, can you talk a little bit about fueling and why it's important to pre-fuel and not put ourselves under stress? Yeah, so uh, almost everything that we know about, like the glucose, carbohydrate burning, and then slowly getting the fat burning and doing fasted training to change your metabolic um, profile for exercises based on male data. When we look at women's bodies and women's physiology, we clear blood sugar quickly. And that's our primary when we start exercising. And then we'll tap into just a little bit of muscle glycogen and then a lot of, of fat, fat use or beta oxidation. So we need to fuel because we need to maintain our blood glucose. If we don't maintain our blood glucose, then what happens is we tap into a little bit of muscle glycogen so that we can get into beta oxidation, but the body's like, wait, I need to save that because I don't know when I'm gonna get food and our bodies are really responsive to food availability. So for men, not a lot of food means they lean up and they don't have a genetic change to increase stores. But for women, when we exercise without fuel, we don't have carbohydrate on board as fuel when we start exercising. We have a gene adaptation in our liver that upregulates, let's store everything and burn lean mass. So one-off okay. session, yeah, it's okay. Um, I'll forgive you. 
because <laughs> we all me. do it. We all do it. But if we're really looking to maintain our lean mass and prevent our bodies from getting signaling to store body fat, we have to do stuff that's fueled. It doesn't mean a big meal. And it can be like, I'm infamous for talking about my protein cold brew in the morning where it's protein powder, unsweetened almond milk, two shots of espresso made the night before. So I had that before I do something. Hey, yummy. Um, and so you would have actually had that. So actually in this morning's example, because uh, mm-hmm. it's a good working example, right? I'm in a quite catabolic state now. So in, in theory, I am undoing the gym work and things and the strength training that I've done the last few days in the gym. Um, yes. And so the thing, the answer would have been instead of the black coffee, I could have mixed that up with it. What was it? A little bit of protein powder, some unsweetened almond milk, any yep. carbs, or you would have just had the, oh, so you could just use amino okay. acids then presumably. Yeah. If it, well, it actually depends on what you're doing. Like if you're going to go do some gym work with resistance training, we know that women should have some protein instead of carbohydrate before they go around 90 calories of protein. So what is that? 20 grams mm. of protein. And that helps bring our resting metabolic rate up after exercise, after resistance training. Okay. If we're going to do cardio, then we want to put a little bit of carb in there. My protein powder has a little bit of carb in it, um, primarily because I love maple sugar. And the only time I can have it is when I put it with my protein powder. So I put maple sugar in with my protein powder and coffee. Um, so yes, this is, there's a little bit of carb, but it's primarily amino acid based. Um, so yeah, if you were to have put protein powder in your black coffee, you would have been good to go. So, so just so I clarify that. So if I was weight training, I would have the protein powder with the black coffee, but actually doing what I was doing today, which was some just sprints, very quick, short, sharp. Uh, I should have had a little bit of carbs as well. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because we're doing that kind of anaerobic training. Yes. 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 Okay. Interesting. So if we come back a little bit to nutrition, because we stick with them. So the sprint interval training that I was doing this morning, this is really important. And I think you talk a lot about this in the book. We need to provide, that's another way of providing a strong stimulus. And a lot of the research I've seen, and I think you talk about this as well in here in the book, is about how that helps your mitochondria. Um, Yes. There's also... um, so, okay, so just uh, let's step back a little bit. To clarify for people, they might be wondering what the hell is sprint interval training? Can you just describe what that means for doing? Yes, yeah, so sprint interval training falls under the umbrella of high intensity interval training, but both of them are different. So sprint interval training is like full gas for 20 to 30 seconds with maybe 90 to 120 seconds every week. So you're going as hard as you can for 20 to 30 seconds and a full recovery. So then you can go as hard as you can again. If we're looking at high intensity interval training, the interval is longer. It's not as high intense. So if we're looking at a rating of perceived exertion, you're doing sprint interval training, you're sitting at a nine or 10 for those 20 to 30 seconds. We talk about high intensity interval training where your intervals are a little bit longer then you're sitting around a a seven or eight. So it's just slightly less intense, but they're still short. But with sprint interval training, you can't do very much of it. And it's balls to the wall as hard as you can go for those intervals. And then as fast as you can recover, recover. But you want to make sure that you've recovered enough that when it's time to do the next interval, you can go as hard as you can again. It's not about, you know, I'm bringing my heart rate down to 140 and then I'm going to bring it up to 180. It's about the recovery. Like, how are you recovering from a cardiovascular and a neuromuscular standpoint so that you can go really fast, really hard again? 
And it might be that you can only do three when you first start, and then you can build up to five to eight sets. Um, but it's about being short, sharp, and very efficient. Okay. So you could increase that recovery as you were going through, could you? So for example, I was doing exactly that, about 25 seconds, and then recovering for about 60 seconds. But I noticed as I was going through the number of sprints, I was needing slightly longer recovery to be able to get back up to the speed. So that's fine. You can play with that. That's fine. Okay. Yeah. So how many times a week do we need to be doing this? And is this something that we need to avoid in the luteal phase? Uh, so in the luteal phase, it is something you want to avoid because it's so high intense and it's such a strong stress to the body. Um, that said, if you're suffering from a really bad PMS and you're like, I can't get out of bed because I have lots of bloating and I just awful, or you've gone through from luteal, <clears throat> excuse me, luteal to the bleed phase and you're having a lot of cramping, then getting out and doing a couple of short, sharp, high intensity, 20 second intervals is magic because you're not doing something that's overly taxing if you're only doing three or four of them. And it increases a growth hormone and an anti-inflammatory response. So there is a time and a place to do it. It's just not making it a regular habit in the luteal phase. Um, if we're looking at it from a perimenopause standpoint and we want to garner that higher uh, metabolic stress, then we want to try to do that three times a week. Three times a week. Okay. So if you were going to do that and people are short on time, can they chuck this onto the end of their strength session? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So we look at, you know, your strength session might be 30 minutes. And then at the end of that 30 minutes of maybe doing a lot of posterior chain work, you jump on the treadmill and you're doing five rounds of 20 seconds on and a minute and a half off. And you're teaching your body how to go really fast, really hard on somewhat tired legs, which improves that neuromuscular condition as well. Perfect. And what about uh, just steady state kind of zone two style training? There's a lot of talk about this at the moment. And I know Peter Atia has been talking about it a lot on his podcast and that this is really good for mitochondrial uh, health as well. What are your thoughts on this? Because <laughs> I've had a quite, quite, a, quite a few people have asked me this question. Please ask Stacey about zone two training. Ask this question. <laughs> I know. I um, It, it, pushes women into that gray zone, into that moderate intensity zone, not necessarily because they want to be there, but just by the nature of trying to keep it moderately easy, they end up being in that gray zone where it's too hard to be easy to really garner mitochondrial adaptations and things that you want. And it's too easy to be hard to really get the adaptations you want for body composition change. But what it does do is it increases cortisol and this is something we don't want oh, because we already have. So. Okay. Yep. So if we're looking at polarizing our training, which is what we want to do, we want to make sure that we have that very top end bit. And then you're looking at that zone one. Like I make people wear a heart rate monitor to make sure they stay low enough because if they're going on a rating and perceived exertion, they often end up too high and they're not getting the benefits of being purely aerobic. And could you measure this? Because something I've been playing with that I really enjoy, it puts me into a very parasympathetic state. I come back very, very relaxed is when I just decide I'm going to go out and I'm going to go for a very, like you say, embarrassingly slow jog. Uh, and I have to, I can only do it so long as I can maintain 100% nasal breathing. So in and out through yep. the nose, it's very relaxing afterwards. 
Yes. Yeah. And you have to, you have to actually train yourself to do that. Because mm. initially people are like, oh, I can't breathe. And they get really anxious. Yeah. So practicing nasal breathing at rest first. And then when you go out to do a really embarrassingly slow run, yes, it does. It, it does invoke that parasympathetic response. And you're like, wow, I feel like I've just come back from a heavy lift session, but I'm not sore. Yeah. Yeah, it's really weird. And I'm not a hyper, which is like for me, I'm <laughs> obsessed with doing things all the time. I never yeah. thought I'd like it. And I'm like, oh, I'm in like all kind of Zen mode. Yeah. 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 My kids like me when I'm walking after one of those. <laughs> yeah, I don't tell my husband about it because he would want me to do it all the time. <laughs> all the time, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you can do that for as long as you like, presumably, or as long as you can maintain it, right? Over time, I guess. Yeah. Harder. Yeah. Okay. And that's yeah. any time of the month, presumably. Exactly. Okay. It's always good to try to try to invoke that parasympathetic and that relax, because especially when we're in our early to mid 40s, we always end up in the sympathetic drive mm -hmm. just because we have so much going on and we have hormone flux and changes and we have more of an instigation for parasympathetic. Our baseline cortisol is coming up. We don't have as much progesterone that is going to be more of the calming aspect. So anything that we can do to really get that parasympathetic going and that calm and relax and that zen feeling is something that you should be focusing on. As the nights draw in and it's getting darker in the evenings here in the UK um, and the mornings are much less bright, it seems that we are just turning on our lights more and more and that can really disrupt our sleep. But the best way to avoid this is, first of all, obviously to dim the lights in the evening, but also to pop on a pair of blue light blocking glasses. Now, not all blue light blocking glasses block enough blue light, but the ones by Red Light Rising do, and they are my favorite. I tend to put a yellow lens pair on in the afternoon and then as I transition into the evening I put on the red lens which blocks a hundred percent of blue light and just sets me up for a fantastic night's sleep every night in fact it's not just me all members of my household my kids included wear these blue light blocking lenses and you can get yourself a cool 10% off their lenswear by heading over to angelafoster.me forward slash blue blockers that's angelafoster.me forward slash blue blockers and entering code Angela at checkout and if you're thinking about getting a red light you can also get the same discount off any of their red light therapy devices as well that's angelafoster.me forward slash blue blockers now let's get back to the show and then fasting which I know is a, a controversial topic it's really interesting because I was in, I was interviewing um Dr Joseph Anton I think who is the CEO of Prolon and he, what he was saying just really dovetails with what you say, because he was like, well, they, they obviously are all about molecular fasting, right, that company. And the research is really good that they've done. But he's like, there's no point. You're not stimulating autophagy by fasting for 16 hours. So there really isn't a point to doing it. And depending on how overweight you are, it could take uh, what they found is and the reason they made it a five day molecular fast was you may only get one day where you're really stimulating overall autophagy. So it seems like, I know you're really nodding at me, a big myth because everyone is obsessed with it. And it's funny because even though I know all of this, the more you're surrounded by on social media, the more you kind of get competitive with it and think, oh yeah, but I've been fasting this long, even though you know it isn't really doing that. Um, and exercise is stimulating autophagy anyway. But can we clear right. this up for people? Because Yeah, for sure. Now, I just wrote an article on intermittent fasting versus time restricted okay. today for uh, for a magazine. So it's all fresh in my head. Cool. Um, 
So first of all, when we talk about fasting, you have intermittent fasting and you have time-restricted eating. So time-restricted eating is what first came out when they're looking in the 40s around the war, we need to have some calorie restriction. And they're like, okay, well, let's really just make an effort to educate people not to eat after dinner and then they can have breakfast and then we'll have a slight calorie restriction during the day. But time-restricted eating really is eating according to our circadian rhythm. So we wake up, we need food, our brain sees light, it's time to eat, our body can handle it. And then it's starting to get dark, we don't eat when it's dark. That's time-restricted eating. We talk about intermittent fasting, which also often gets, you know, the terminology gets intermixed. Intermittent fasting is what all the buzz is, where we're having like the warrior, where you have a four hour eating window, a 12 hour eating window, or an eight hour eating window, or alternate day fasting. And this is where it gets really confusing because intermittent fasting is interesting because you either have it with calorie restriction in your eating window, or you eat whatever you want within that eating window. And when we're looking at the research that's been done on people, it's primarily obese, overweight women, sedentary women, or obese, overweight, clinically sick men, that then that's been generalized into general population. And the primary aspect of intermittent fasting is weight loss. Then they're like, oh, well, we'll see these other kinds of, of you know, health benefits of autophagy and uh, increased oxidative uh, capacity within the muscle, better cardiovascular output, all of these kinds of things. But when it comes right down to it, it's calorie restriction. So there is a really good meta-analysis that came out and another clinical study that just came out maybe three weeks ago comparing the two. And people who are doing slight calorie restriction end up with better weight loss and better cardiovascular outcomes and better endocrine health than people who are doing all this crazy intermittent fasting, time-restricted windows. When we look right down to the data as well, when we're looking at men versus women, all the stuff that you hear about with intermittent fasting, with autophagy and parasympathetic drive and blood glucose control and better insulin control is all male data. Because when you look at women, it's not there. There isn't anything to support it for women. We see the complete opposite. We see a down regulation on a genetic level. So when we're looking at gene adaptations to food restriction for men, we see a five-time increase in gene responses to preserve lean mass and to preserve testosterone. But for women, we see not only no upregulation of genes to preserve fertility, we see a change to stop fertility. We see a downregulation of thyroid. We see a downregulation of luteinizing pulse. We see a blunting of kispeptin, which is responsible for appetite and appetite control. And we see in women, instead of blood glucose control and better insulin sensitivity, the opposite. So when we're talking about all this intermittent fasting stuff that's being Put out there, autophagy becomes the one at the very bottom because people don't really want to talk about that because it's not there for either mm-hmm. sex unless you really start getting into the long duration stuff. <clears throat> but when you start looking at exercise and exercise data, you start exercising and it's a huge stimulus to create autophagy in the brain and the cardiovascular system. We also know that exercise promotes um, the aerobic exercise promotes the growth of 
of brain tissue and resistance training increases the growth of the nerve growth factor within the brain. So exercise in itself has more robust data to support longevity and support all the things that the buzzwords of intermittent fasting support, but the evidence is there and the adherence to exercise with slight calorie restriction is so much better and the outcomes are better than someone who's trying to do all these crazy hours of time restriction because the hunger really baits at people. And the idea of, I just, I can't do anything until noon because I have, I can't break my fast till noon. And then if we're trying to fit our training in and it's in that fasted window, like we talked about earlier, it's really devastating to women regardless of age because our bodies revert to using lean mass first Mm. instead of using carbohydrate and fat. Interesting. Interesting. And so um, I guess for women then that are, are exercising, that autophagy that's stimulated through exercise, is that regardless of whether they go and do the workout in a fasted state? Because I know we've just been talking about pre-fueling workouts in different ways. Is there any benefit to actually going and because I've heard people talk about stimulating more NAD and the salvage pathway and things like that. If you go and exercise in a fasted state, is there any benefit? In men, in, in men, men, but not okay, in women, not in women, not in women. Okay. No, because from like a pure biological standpoint, when it comes down to our environment and food availability, biologically, the male is completely different than the female. Biologically, food inaccessibility and low nutrient density <clears throat> increases the fertility aspect of the male species because the whole thing is, if there isn't any food, I'm going to die off soon. So I need to be able to reproduce to keep the species going. Uh -huh. But not only that, because there's lack of food and lack of food availability, we know that in the female aspect of the species from biological standpoint, that there's a downturn of fertility. So the, the male species has to increase fertility to be able to impregnate a subfertile um, female aspect for survival of the species. So it all comes down to that mm. biological aspect. I see. That's interesting. Yeah, really interesting. Um, and so actually, our bodies are completely different. Completely different. And is that true though? What about when women have transitioned through menopause? What about, um, does, is there any benefits to fasted exercise that? So this is where we start looking at the very sparse research that's out there. So you'll have physicians who are like, yes, you should do fasted training to lose that body fat. And yes, you should do ketogenic diet because it helps with the abdominal um, adiposity. But when we look again, back down to molecular mechanisms, women are already maximally fatty acid adapted for burning fat at, during exercise. There's no reason to do fasted exercise or the ketogenic diet, because again, it's a stress on the body that increases cortisol. And women who are postmenopausal already have a higher level baseline. And we also have a greater, or women also have a greater um, systemic inflammation, especially the early uh, menopausal years, the postmenopausal years. So about the first five to six years after that one point in time of menopause, the body is still undergoing this transition. So if you start adding in the fasted training, it increases the stress and it backfires. So then you have an increased signaling for putting on more body fat because the body's like, hey, wait, I'm going through all this craziness. I don't have these hormones. I'm trying to reset and relearn. 
and I know that I have increased protein for um, fatty acid use in my mitochondria. So why are you trying to do this to me? So it, in the small amount of research that is out there on postmenopausal women and exercise, fasting is still not recommended. Interesting, because this this is actually difficult, right? When you're looking at the busyness, because I'm I'm just thinking, and I think probably listeners are thinking about this. So at the moment, you know, my kids are on they're on holiday, they're at home, so I can kind of do things whenever I want to in the morning, as long as they're entertained at some point during the day, it's all good. Whereas in, in a few weeks' time, when we go back to school runs, for me, I would definitely, and I like to do this anyway, because I like to move first, get up work out in a fasted state and then hope that I will I will be now after listening to you make sure I refuel before that school run because otherwise I'm inadvertently going quite a long time from what you're saying it almost sounds like doing some gentle because I can't just come and sit and work out of bed right I'll get terrible backache it's horrible isn't it so it's but it sounds like you're almost saying maybe like you know walk your dogs for a toilet break or do some flexibility but actually postponing eating and postponing the workout almost post-school run is going to be better in terms of the results that you're going to see and, and keeping the, the body less stressed. Yes. In the short, like you're living oh. my life. We're living the same life, right? Yeah. So it's like, it's a challenge. It is. It's totally a challenge. I get up first thing and I'm like secretly, quietly walking down the stairs because I don't want my daughter to wake up because as, she, as soon as she wakes up, boom, it's all on. Mm. So I want to get up early, have my quiet time, do stretching, do a workout. And then, then I can deal when she wakes up and we have breakfast, school run, all that kind of stuff. So I get up and, and I have that, that protein coffee in there. And that, okay. that's what gets me through, right? Because I can't eat. I'm not hungry until 10 or 11 in the morning, but I know that I need food in order to get what I want out of my short workout. Otherwise, I'm like, I should have stayed in bed. Because if I'm going to get up and try to do intervals and I'm running on cortisol from being asleep and I don't have any fuel, then I'm not going to hit the intensities I want to get any kind of adaptations. I'm going to increase my already elevated cortisol and I'm going to be tired all day. But just that little bit of extra before I go do any kind of workout, it just makes a complete difference. It gives you, it drops the cortisol, it allows you to hit the intensities that you want for that high intensity work or the lifts that you want at the load that you want because you have a little bit of fuel and your hypothalamus is going, hey, okay, great. There is some fuel and I know that I can do this and I'm gonna adapt to this, even though it's not a lot, it's some. Mm. And it's giving the body the signal that there's some food available. And then you recover post-exercise with maybe a half a breakfast because you don't have time to eat the full thing, or you're having a little puddle of yogurt or something like that, just to get a little bit of nutrition in to help facilitate the repair, stop that breakdown state and signal to the hypothalamus that yes, there's food available. So it's small management within that whole tight time range. But if you're someone who's like, yeah, I really want to, I can't eat. I just absolutely can't eat in the morning, then you want to really take an eye of what kind of training you're doing. Because if you're trying to do any kind of high intensity work or heavy lifting and you don't have fuel on board, then it causes this quagmire of, of increased cortisol. You're not going to get a growth hormone boost after exercise. You're getting signaling for more inflammation. And then if you're not eating after exercise, that just compounds the fact because you stay in this breakdown state. So just that small amount might be a hundred calories of a little bit of protein and carbohydrate before you go. 
it makes a world of difference, both from what you can do in the moment for exercise, but also long-term for body composition and health. Would you still do that if you were doing one of those kind of parasympathetic-based runs where you're kind of nasally breathing, or if that way you're just burning fat, would you do that in a fat-burning state? In a fasted state? Yeah, no, I wouldn't do anything fasted. Because the you whole idea anything of, fasted, interesting. Okay. No, because the whole idea of fat burning is a myth from the 80s as well. Because if we look yeah. at the way the body works, you have to use carbohydrate before you can get into fat burning. And if you don't have enough carbohydrate on board to get into fat burning, the first thing that comes up is cortisol. So if we're trying to do parasympathetic and we're trying to instigate more of that parasympathetic drive, you need fuel on board, or it's kind of a midpoint. You have more epinephrine, you have more cortisol that comes up, and you end up in that sympathetic drive. Interesting. Because some people wake up, like they'll use something like the device of Lumen, and they say, I'm waking up and I'm burning carbs, so therefore I need to fast for longer. But it sounds from what you're saying, actually, over time, their metabolism is going to become eminently more flexible because it's going to be less stressed if they're fueling. Because I think yes, that concept, isn't it? Oh, I must do more because now it's not working. Actually, yeah. it's yeah, it's flipping it on its head. Um, yes. And post-workout then, the post-workout nutrition you mentioned there you can just have something small if you're in a rush. What's key there? Is it protein and carbs again? Yes. Yes. For women, especially as we get older, we need more protein. Protein becomes paramount um, because, again, we're getting more and more anabolically resistant. But we want to make sure that we're getting protein and some carbohydrate in relatively quickly because our bodies come back down to baseline for the most part within around 90 minutes where men can have three to 18 hours. So you really want to make sure that you're getting that nutrition in. So we'll hear things about, oh, there isn't a timing window anymore. Well, there isn't a timing window really for men because it's so wide, but for women it's tight because our metabolisms come back down. And if we don't get that nutrition signaling to the hypothalamus, then we start getting that down regulation of those peptin neurons. If we get that, then we get endocrine dysfunction, thyroid dysfunction. And it only takes four days of doing the no fueling after exercise to start having thyroid dysfunction. The wow. brain's like, we need to start conserving. And like I said, like you start getting um, changes within the liver to turn on all the signals for absorbing and storing instead of using. So it's really important that women remember to eat. And, and you need to hit the 30 gram. You're doing. Yeah, and fueling yeah. what you're doing. Do you need to hit, like Gabrielle Lyons talks about, make sure you get at least 30 grams to, for, to yes. trigger muscle protein synthesis with that kind of three to four grams of leucine? Yes, yes. Yeah, that's simple. Absolutely. And when you get into late perimenopause and postmenopause, it's closer to 40. Okay. Close to, yeah, I remember she always says between 30 and 50, close to, close yeah. to 40 for late perimenopause. Yeah. Okay. And, and for those of you listening, actually, so I won't go into the detail here, in your book, uh, you actually break down how much you should have. It's super helpful. There's a table in there talking about if you're doing a recovery day, if you're strength training, what you're having and, and how you apportion those macronutrients, those protein, fats and carbs. So listeners, you can go and look at that because I found that a really, really helpful thing um, okay. in the book. Really good. Um, okay. And so then with the the other thing I wanted to chat to you about that I think was really interesting there was um, around the vagus nerve 
And we're all tracking, you know, using like things like Whoop and Aura Rings and having a look at our heart rate variability. And you make a really interesting point around how these wearables are not really picking up what's happening with female hormones and the way that progesterone seems to be calming for the brain, but has a different impact on the vagus nerve. This was super interesting to me. Yes. So when we look at all the wearable tech, it's not femtech. This is why there's this huge uproar and let's do femtech is all the algorithms were written by men in a male environment and then given to women. But what happens um, with progesterone coming up is it stimulates um, more of a sympathetic drive. So it changes, there are changes in the autonomic nervous system. So we now have an increase in our resting heart rate. We have an increase in our respiratory rate. We have changes in our sleep architecture so that we can't get into a lot of slow wave sleep, which we need. So when we're looking at using wearables, especially something like Whoop and Aura, where they're giving you codes of if you're recovered or not, they aren't comparing luteal to luteal. They're comparing follicular to luteal. So if you're looking at something like Whoop, it's really, really difficult to get into the green in the luteal phase because it's comparing day on to day on to day on, which starts with primarily follicular because that's Mm -hmm. where you have your best recovery. If it was to be like, okay, we're tracking, they toggled menstrual cycle status on, let's count forward 14 or 15 days and let's see if ovulation is there. And then we're going to compare the last half of the cycle to the previous last cycle. And we're going to compare follicular phase to follicular phase. That would be better for really using and being able to interpret what's happening with those wearables. Then when you hit postmenopause, it's a complete change again because your heart rate variability completely plummets because now you don't have hormones interfering with the autonomic nervous system. Now you have a different set of parameters that you have to work with yet again, because I have women who are in late perimenopause, like I'm never recovered. What's going on? My heart rate variability is always so low. Like, well, it's because we need to look at the new trend. We have to watch the trends, not the day-to-day input that these variables are giving us. Okay. And that's why it's important never to compare with someone else, right? You're looking at what yours doing. Yeah. I've noticed actually on the aura is that my resting heart rate is elevated slightly in the luteal phase. And as you say, my, my HRV seems less, but I haven't, I haven't gone back. I guess I should do that and compare like, what is it? Luteal phase to luteal phase to see really how well I'm recovered. Interesting. Be nice if we had a device that could help us um, do this, wouldn't it? It would be be really, really helpful. Um, and creatine was the last question. You talk about that being really, um, really good for women. There's obviously neurological benefits as much as anything else. Do you chuck that in? And I'm just curious in that pre-workout drink that you have. Yeah, my secret concoction is um, medicinal mushrooms, shishandra, creatine, protein, double espresso, almond milk, maple syrup, maple sugar. Maple sugar. <laughs> nice. Yeah. And, and which mushrooms? Are you using like cordyceps to fuel the, the workout? Um, no, I'm using lion's mane. Okay. Because lion's mane is really good for brain, brain health. Yeah. Um, and just have had history of a few concussions and a lot of the research that we're doing with concussion and, and long-term concussion, I'm like, I need to do heavy resistance training and use lion's mane. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Oh, interesting. Because I was hearing about how some athletes were banned after using, not banned, they, yeah, their results were not allowed after using cordyceps because it had such 
big results in terms of blood flow as well. Yeah, um, yeah, it does. Yeah. I think cordyceps and I think it's reishi as well can alter testosterone. So they are not recommended for professional athletes to use because it can come up as a positive dope test. Yes. Yeah, really interesting. So I have some specific questions, if that's all right, before we close. Sure. Some rapid fire ones. You've been so generous with your time. But these are very interesting ones. We may have covered some of them. Uh, so one of the questions was, uh, we've covered this one, actually. Uh, how long before or after training is it optimal to eat for a good body composition? So the pre-fueling that you're doing, how long before uh, the workout is that? Is that like sort of 20 minutes or...? How close to you working out yeah. with caffeine? Yeah. yeah. No, no, like most people are getting up and trying to fuel right before they work out. So it's not going to be like a 90 minute thing, but 20 minutes is fine. Some people are like drinking or eating in the cars or driving to the gym. So as long as you have something in and it's not heavy, heavy in fat, then it's going to, and probably not heavy in fiber too. It's going to get out and, and be useful by the time you get to your workout. Awesome. Thank you. And then afterwards is within 30 minutes from what you were saying. I yep. think. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Brilliant. Um, I've read both your books, done your course. I'd be interested. We talked a little bit about this on zone two training for those following your recommendations on strength, hit and plyo uh, and what Peter Atia was saying, but we've talked about this. This is a stress on the body. I guess one thing I want to clarify there then so people understand the differences when what heart rate are we kind of getting up to where we feel we're moving into that gray area where it's causing too much stress so if we want to make it more zone one more um, parasympathetic how can people adjust that and understand whether they're working within the right zone yeah so you don't want to go above 55 percent of your your max max heart rate okay and you use the general kind of 220 minus your age as a kind of crude representation of it or what would you Uh, for people starting, but a lot of people are using their wearables and they can see where they spike out. Like I have quite a few people who are in their mid forties, but their max heart rate is in like 195. So 220 minus their age wouldn't really work. So yeah, it's good for baseline, but it's yeah. better to try to like figure it out through real objective data if you can so yeah so if you're training regularly and you have data where you can see your heart rate reaches a maximum you're looking at about 55 percent of that yep yeah yeah Yeah, that's really interesting what you say because with the nasal breathing i found that mine can go above 140 and i'm still breathing nasally whereas that's very individual right yes absolutely um and then um what about what's your take on walking you don't mention it that much but i think uh this is from someone who does uh, again has has done your books read your books and done your courses lifts a lot of heavy shit uh she does sprint training but she walks about twenty thousand steps a day is this sort of counting towards all her does it complement it is she doing too much too little what are your thoughts is it purposeful walking like out trying to maintain a heart rate walking or is it the 20,000 steps because she is a shift worker or nurse in her she does I did ask her that, actually she does about 10,000 steps in a in a block so that's purposeful and then the rest is picked up through movement so about half and half oh um as long as it's like if she's doing that 10,000 block purposeful and she knows why she's doing it is she doing it to um have really polarized like recovery and that's your easy slow stuff then sweet 
keep it low, keep it easy. But if she's doing it and she's trying to power walk and power walk up hills, really making sure that she stays out of that moderate intensity zone, which is hard when you're walking. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's really having a purpose for what is that? Just like if you're rowing or running or riding or whatever it is, whatever your main sport is, you have to have a purpose for it and understand what you're doing when you go out. Okay. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, And then um, I'm a 51 year old endurance athlete. I'm soaking up all of Stacey's advice. Is it better to lift before or after a run? I'm never sure when to schedule the lifting in, especially on a double run day. That sounds intense. Oh, hard. Don't do lifting Mm. on a double run day. And I know for people who are endurance athletes, they have a really hard time, like mentally shifting out of like a double run day or dropping the volume. So it's ideal to lift heavy first and then do some interval stuff on the treadmill after instead of a long, slow distance run. So the way that we look at it is if you are running to do ultra running or you're running for a marathon, you want to do high intensity, like quality work in the week. And then you can do one long, slow stuff on the weekend. And then when you're having your two weeks on, one week off, this is where in that one week off, you're putting in another really long, slow, easy, easy walk run. But when we're trying to maximize strength as well as that endurance for running in particular, it's better to lift first and then do some technique sprint work afterwards. Because again, you're going to take that lifting fatigue and put it into your running form, which then feeds forward to getting you strong in the back half of the run that you're trying to do. To be more efficient. There's a bit of a misconception, yes. isn't it, that you have to do endless amounts of endurance. I remember when speaking to Ben Greenfield, and albeit a man, about how he trained for triathlon, it was so different to how most people trained. And he was doing a lot of interval work and kind of VO2 max training yep. to fuel yep. all that endurance, which just was massively time-saving. It's huge. And there's still that misconception that if you're going to do endurance, you have to put many hours on the feet, like marathon training. You have to go and do your 20 miler before you're ready to do your marathon. And it's not, it's not like the science is ahead of the coaching. Let's put it that way. Because when you look at the science, that's not the optimal way to be able to go along. You end up falling into a pace that ends up being a bit too slow you end up more injured but if you're doing high quality strength and interval work then that carries you forward without injury with strength to be able to do the long stuff Mm. makes a lot of sense Um, and then the last one is on hydration we talked about this a bit offline because this is a confusing area for a lot of people water or just electrolytes if i'm running long between one and five hours in a hot climate I'm I'm 51 and my thirst response isn't so good these days. Yes, because we get a change in our thirst response and we have biochemical changes that reduce our ability to feel thirsty. And then as soon as you put water on your tongue, it kills the thirst sensation. So if we're looking at staying hydrated in a hot environment, we want to look at something that's functionally hydrating. So what I mean by that is when we're looking at where we have most of our fluid absorbed, it's from the small intestines. And the small intestines is very particular to the kinds of fluids and and solids that come into it. So there's an amount of pressure that it can withstand. It's between 200 and 250 milliosmoles. Now for people who are like, I'm not a physiologist, I don't understand that. 
your blood sits around 280. And most sports drinks sit around 300. And if you're looking at plain water, it's maybe 10 because it has some minerals and electrolytes in it. If we drink a sports drink that sits around 300 and it goes into the small intestines and you're well above that 250, water has to come from other places in the body to dilute that sports drink before it can actually be absorbed. So you're causing an effective diuresis or effective dehydration. Then when you start adding salt tablets in and you're bringing salt tablets into that environment, again, it's increasing the concentration and the pressure in the small intestine. So more water has to come in and dilute it. If we're looking at using a drink that is around three to 4%, so three to four grams of carbohydrate per hundred mil with uh, at the maximum 160 to 200 milligrams of sodium per serving, 500 mil, that's functionally hydrating. So that's gonna work with your small intestines to be able to maximally absorb the fluid. So when we're looking at what do we need to stay hydrated, we need a solution that has a little bit of sugar and a little bit of salt. That's it. You don't need magnesium. You don't need potassium. You don't need a thousand milligrams of sodium because none of those work okay. with regards to fluid absorption. What's happened in sports science and, and the sport nutrition marketing is you have the big guns of Gatorade and Gatorade started off as a three to 4% solution with an artificial sweetener that got pulled by the FDA. So then they doubled the carbohydrate in it to maintain that, that sweet palate and then said, no, it's the way we, we replace carbohydrates so you can keep going. It didn't get the messaging out about fluid absorption got lost. So then people started cramping and they started getting belly aches. They're like, oh, it's because I don't have enough sodium. So then salt tablets came in. But if you unpack it all and bring it right back down to the small intestines where fluid absorption takes place, three to four grams of pr primarily sucrose and glucose, because then those are the two sugars that are used readily for fluid absorption. And so it's three to four grams per 100 mil and 160 milligrams of sodium up to 200 or 500 more. And that's all you need. Wow. And actually what I see is people taking like a thousand milligrams, as you say, of sodium mixed with some potassium, um, like, you know, on a daily basis, a lot of people are like taking the Kinton ampules and saying, I need it, which is like, or Totem Sport, they're like so, so salty. So particularly, <laughs> yeah. I mean, particularly and, for and like- And it feeds forward too, because then they're like, oh, my salty sweater. It's like, well, if you didn't have such a high sodium intake, you wouldn't sweat out so much sodium. Because if you have a high sodium diet, then you're going to sweat more sodium. If you have a low sodium diet, you're going to have more dilute sweat. Your body can lose up to 50% of its sodium stores and still be fine during exercise. The problem comes when you're drinking plain water, which is what a lot of the waterlogged and they you know, drink to thirst and and exercise-induced hyponatremia come into play because people are drinking plain water. So salt has to come from places in the body to actually mix with that water to be absorbed. So this is where people started going, oh, we need salt tablets. So it's a miscommunication of what's happening from a physiological standpoint. And if you're having a lot of sodium from the sports products and you're drinking them on a daily basis, then yes, you're gonna have a higher amount of sodium stored you're probably peeing out a lot of sodium too because your aldosterone is going to come into play and be like, we don't need all of this. 
and you're going to end up being a salty sweater, which then makes you think you need more sodium because you're a salty sweater. Mm. So actually mixing it up, as you said, and that's when you go beyond what is it after an hour's exercise yep. or yeah. Okay. So anything, yeah. so for, for the average person who's basically looking to stay fit for kind of health and longevity and, and performance, and they're exercising for an hour or less a day, actually, if they're using like Celtic or sea salt or, you know, something like Redmond Real and adding it to food, they're probably getting what they need. Exactly. And if they're really concerned because it's a really hot day, then you can put a 16th teaspoon of just normal salt into 500 to 750 mils and a teaspoon of maple syrup. Then you have everything you need. It's a perfect drink for staying hydrated on a hot day while you exercise. And that's it. It's the salt and sugar. Amazing. Thank you so much for answering all of these questions. How can people keep up to date? Because the book's brilliant. We will link to that obviously in the show notes. You're always um, doing new research. You've got some exciting mini courses that I've seen as well on your website. That yes. people can Please share, 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 please, Stacey. How can people find yes. you and how can they consume your content? So uh, the website, drstacysevens.com has all the stuff that we're up to. Uh, that's where you can buy the micro learning. So those are the small little bullet courses, the deep dive on specific topics. I'm pretty excited about that because I get so many questions and I like to geek out. Um, it talks about our menopause course that we're revamping coming out, some of the upcoming courses that are coming out, list of all the research projects that's going on. So all the details are found on the website. But then for sm- real short snippets of stuff that's going on that's social media so dr stacy sims on facebook and instagram and then you'll get a short sharp view of what's going on and some helpful information every day amazing thank you so much thanks for all sharing all of that um we will link to all of it in the show notes and thanks again for coming on the show yeah thanks for having me it's been fun it's been really fun Thanks so much for listening to another episode of the High Performance Health Podcast. We really hope you enjoyed the show. And this podcast wouldn't happen without listeners and supporters like you. And the best way to support the show and to support me is to head over to iTunes or whichever platform you're listening on and provide us with a five-star review. This really helps us to spread the message wider and help and impact more people to optimize their health and longevity. And if we read out your five-star review, please reach out to us at info at AngelaFosterPerformance.com with your name and your postal address and we will send you a cool biohacking supplement or something else. Thanks again for listening and until next time, keep biosyncing and stay optimized. Thanks for listening. Remember to review and subscribe. You can grab the show notes, the resources, and highlights of everything Angela mentioned over at AngelaFosterPerformance.com. You can also snatch up plenty of other goodies, including the highly helpful Angela Recommends page, which is a list of everything she personally recommends to optimize your mind, body, and lifestyle.